Thank you for tuning in to the best parenting show on the internet. Post Daily Dose. Actually, I'm back again. I realized that the Daily Dose was supposed to be on at 4.30, and we started at 3.30 here. So I'm going to go ahead and continue with part two. So you guys, um, hope you're able to chime in. And if not, tune in. If not, you catch it when you can. We're going to go ahead and start back, tell you about my bowl. I've been carrying this bowl around with me for probably about 18 years. I uh, saw one somewhere and I started asking some of my audiences I lecture at, any of you know where I get one of those bowls that you hit that makes a nice little sound? And finally I was in San Diego and a woman in the audience said, yeah, my husband makes them. And so at the end of the day she brought me this one. This was in, did I say San Diego? That's where it was. And she brought it to my hotel room, and so I've had it ever since. So my, my bowl does two things. Number one, it lets us know that we're going to start back after a break. And number two, it is a cue to take three deep breaths. So it is an opportunity to practice your breathing. So when you hear the bowl, you breathe, inhale through your nose. Unless you have a cracker in your mouth, I don't want anyone choking. <laughs> Inhale through your nose, exhale through your mouth. And you do that three times. So let's do that together. Perfect, thank you. Because that is a cue. It is a cue to start paying attention to your breathing. And here's the thing, you want to practice your breathing when you're calm, not when you're stressed. Because when you're stressed, your short-term memory shuts off, you forget to breathe. So practice your breathing when you're calm. Practice your breathing when you're driving, when you're sitting here right now, on your way home. Before you walk in the door, stop, pause, take three deep breaths. When you pick your children up, take three deep breaths. When you get home this evening, there's something I want you to do to help you have a good evening. One thing you need to do to help you have a good evening, sit down on the couch, 
for 10 minutes as soon as you get home. Don't do anything else. Put your purse down, put your wallet down, put your keys down, and sit on the couch for 10 minutes and just breathe and relax and let your kids engage with you. <laughs> what you do is you change the dynamics, the energy of the transition. If you'll do that, the rest of the evening will be much better. Because when your children are away from you all day long, they're doing something really important, something that you've enabled them to do. They are utilizing their window of tolerance. They're utilizing their window of tolerance all day for handling stress. All day, they're using that window of tolerance. And by the end of the day, that window of tolerance is really small. It's small for you and I. And so what happens is we spend all of our day we spend our entire day, our entire window of tolerance, that by the end of the day, when we finally get together as a family, the people who need it the most get it the least. We spend all of our window of tolerance on the people who matter the least. And the people who matter the most get the least of it. So take time, breathe, calm yourself down, expand your window of tolerance, and get back present. It changes the whole evening. So Bruce Lee says one of the best lessons you can learn in life is to master how to remain calm. And let me tell you why that's important. I've already told it to you, but I want to reinforce it. Mastering the art of remaining calm is keeping your cortisol reaction down, which means it keeps your stress hormone down, and it turns your oxytocin up. When you can remain calm, in the presence of stress, you keep your cortisol down. When you keep your cortisol turned down, you keep your fear vibration turned down. Very important. Your children, because of their history, are stress sensitive and fearful. Do you remember that? They are stress sensitive. So they are more sensitive to stress than anyone else that you know, other than maybe yourself, or maybe some other adult. They are stress sensitive and they're fearful. They are full of fear. They may look angry, they may talk angry, they may talk smack, they may yell, they may threaten, but they are scared. They are scared, they are scared, they are scared. And your ability to see their fear underneath their anger, your ability to see their fear underneath their behaviors transforms everything. Because when you can see fear, you feel less threatened, you feel less overwhelmed. You feel less stressed. But if you look at someone who's yelling at you and cussing at you and threatening you, your brain, your amygdala automatically wants to see that person as a threat. Because that's what the amygdala does. The amygdala looks for threats. And when your amygdala senses a threat, it starts to escalate the cortisol and pushes the pedal to the metal. Turns the cortisol up. Uh, and before you know it, you're completely stressed out. So when you see a child who's acting out, your brain, your amygdala is looking to see a threat. And when your brain wants to see a threat, all it wants to do is control, suppress, or change. When, you, when the first thing you say to your child is stop that, you need to calm down, you keep doing that, you're going to get in trouble, you know your amygdala has taken over. Because your amygdala only sees threat. Because your amygdala only sees fear. Your ability to breathe in the midst of your stress keeps your amygdala turned down, keeps your oxytocin in the potential to be dialed up. See, when your children are acting out, they need you to dial up oxytocin. Because oxytocin, your ability to dial up their oxytocin is going to send them a positive vibration. 
literally a positive vibration. And when you send them that positive vibration, that positive vibration, it contains the negative vibration. A negative vibration cannot grow in the midst of a positive vibration. The more you can stay positive, the less they can escalate. And you've seen it over and over and over again. You've interacted with adults plenty enough to know that when you've encountered someone who's really upset and you're having, you just you happen to be having a good day. And no matter what they say to you, you don't get upset. And you're just like, I'm good. I'm good, man. You need to get good too. And the longer you can hold that space, the longer you can hold that vibe, the more they come down. And they come down and they come down. It's because you're turning on oxytocin. You're turning on oxytocin in your brain and then you're turning on oxytocin in their brain. They can't help but do it. They can't help but do it. The other thing you're doing for your children, and this is really important too, probably should have talked about this a little bit more when we talk about the brain. Your children have the behaviors they have because they have developed pathways. They have developed pathways in their brain that says when this happens, do this. When this, level is, when this level of stress in my brain reaches this point, follow this pathway. When someone does this, follow this pathway. Those are literally pathways in their brains. Pathways in their brains. Have you ever walked across? I know you've all done it. Your grass gets a little high, and you walk across your grass, and you turn around, you see footprints. You've, you've done that, right? Walk through a tall field with grass and you see the footprint. And if you walk across it again, it's a little deeper footprint. That's not a pathway. That's not a pathway. That's just the beginning of a path. You have to keep walking that path over and over and over. That's called repetition. It takes two things to change the brain. Emotional impact and repetition. You have to keep walking that pathway over and over and over and over before it becomes worn enough that that's what your brain chooses. Until you have that experience of repetition, your brain's going to keep choosing that old pathway. And it doesn't matter how much you talk to your kid in the midst of their behavior problems. It doesn't matter how much you threaten. It doesn't matter how much of their stuff you take away. They're in their emotional brain, and they are pursuing a pathway that is their only option to pursue. That's how their brain is wired. Until you give them a different experience and give them repetition of that experience, they can't form a new pathway, meaning they can't choose new behaviors. Anytime your child starts to do less of the negative behavior and more of the positive behavior, it's because their brain has started to change. Their brain has started to change. And the only way your child does less of a negative behavior and more of a positive behavior is because your brain has changed. Your brain has changed, therefore you have created a new network. They're called mirror neurons. We look at one another and we mirror one another. You've created these mirror neurons that now give your child a different experience. Your child's brain doesn't change without your brain changing. That's why a child can get sent away to residential treatment and come back home, and in a short period of time, he's acting out worse than he was before he even left. That's why a child can be put on medication, and the stress in the home doesn't change. Because the child's brain will not change until your brain changes. It's neurophysiologically impossible. That is the essence of being in a family. That is the essence of family connection. 
That's why we feel so connected in a family, because our brains are connected. They're, they are wired together. On a whole nother level, all of our brains are wired together, together anyway. Every individual in this room, our brains are wired together. But when you're in a family, when you're, when you're with someone seven days a week, 24-7, and you're with that person day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, you become physiologically connected to that person. When they're upset, you're upset. That's why they say if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. Mama's upset, everybody's upset. Even if you try to not be upset, you're upset. I'm going to have it good time. Dang it, oh, Because in families, we're physiologically connected. Your child's brain doesn't change without your brain changing. So you want to do hard work, you want your child to do hard work, you got to do hard work first. Because they can't do it. they got to follow you. Do you have a question about it? No? This sounded good. Yeah, sound good. yeah, I'm starting to. Yeah, yeah, I'm starting to little dude back there. He's giving me snacks. I'm good. I'm good. All right. Both of you appreciate that. The stress model says all behavior arises from a state of stress. I came up with this 20 years ago. All behavior arises from a state of stress. All behavior, good and bad, all comes from stress. Stress is how we live. It's how we function. It's when stress becomes overwhelming, unpredictable, and uninterrupted that it becomes damaging. It's when stress is pervasive. It's when, it, when it's chronic in our lives that it breaks down our brains. It breaks down our bodies. Stress creates heart disease. Stress creates fibromyalgia. Stress creates chronic pain. Stress creates irritable bowel syndrome. Stress creates migraines. Stress creates high blood pressure. That's all stress. It's all stress. All behavior arises from a state of stress. In between the behavior and the stress is the presence of a primary emotion. There's only two primary emotions. Do you know what they are? Love and fear. Those are your only two primary emotions. All of your feelings arise from one of those two energetic states. An emotion is energy in motion. All of your feelings arise from love or fear. It's that simple. It's love or fear. It may look like anger, but the only reason we're angry is because we've learned that that's protective. What are we protecting ourselves against? Because in that moment, we feel vulnerable. In that moment, we feel scared. And you might be big and tough and mean, but you feel vulnerable in your heart. In fact, you feel like a child, a small child, a helpless child, an exposed child. And so then you get mean and big and loud. That's just a show. That's just a show to protect you. But most of us see that big, mean, loud person and we feel threatened. We feel threatened. And when we feel threatened, we try to get big, mean, and loud back. Now you got two big, mean, loud people who are both just scared little kids. And one of them could be five years old. One of them could be five years old. You're, you know, you might be 50. That five-year-old can make you feel like a five-year-old. You're big, mean, and threatening just like that five-year-old is. Trying to prove to that five-year-old that you're bigger and meaner and more threatening. And you keep trying to prove that until they become teenagers, and then it gets a lot harder to prove. A lot more challenging. All behavior arises from the state of stress. What you have to understand here is that we can experience stress through any of our sensory pathways. What we see, what we hear, what we touch, what we taste, what we smell. 
the temperature of our bodies, digestion, movement, intuition. See, intuition is a pathway that we don't give very much credence to. Intuition is your gut pathway. Your gut has an intuition, has a brain. You have a second brain in your gut. It's called your gut brain. It's supposed to be more accurate than your, than your, your brain in your head because it doesn't go through all that thinking of the prefrontal cortex. So we have intuition at a gut level. That's a pathway. You can experience stress through any of your sensory pathways. And that stress correlates to fear. Because when you become stressed, you constrict into survival. You constrict into survival when you become stressed. And in survival, you can't be in a relationship. It is through the expression, the processing, and the understanding of the fear that we can calm the stress and diminish the behavior. When you can see the fear, when you can understand the fear, when you can respond to the fear instead of anything else, that's the process of changing. Creating change in that moment. See the regressed child. See the stressed out child. See it in yourself first. See your own vulnerability. See your own exposed child. Spend some time thinking about that. Spend some time asking yourself this question. I don't know what behavior issues you have with your children right now, but I want you to ask yourself this question. Think about whatever behavior challenges you're having with your child right now. Ask yourself how it makes you feel. How does the behavior, I want you to do this at night when you're in bed when they're asleep. I don't want you to do it right there when you're with them. I want you to do it later when you got some time to really think about it. How does that behavior make you feel? Now I want you to just, just ask yourself that, that question, listen to the answer, and then here's what I want you to do. I want you to breathe into your body,
The only thing that keeps us out of a space of love is fear. It is the only thing. The only thing that keeps us out of a space of love is fear. And the only thing that keeps us out of that space is our ability to breathe. You are one breath away from being able to be in a loving space in any given moment. In any given moment, you are one breath, two breaths, three breaths away from being able to calm your fear and being in a loving space. It is that simple, and it's that powerful, and it's that transformative, it's that revolutionary. The problem is our amygdalas don't want us to breathe because our amygdala keeps telling us we're going to die. Your amygdala says, don't breathe, sucker, fight. Scream, run away, freeze. Your amygdala is wired for survival. Your ability to breathe changes all of that. It changes all of it. It changes the vibration you are emitting. We give breathing far too little value when in fact it is the most important thing. Because your inability to breathe is what keeps you in stress and fear. When your children are acting out, no one's going to die. No one's going to die, but that's the first thing your brain tells you is going to happen. When your child's lying to you, when your child's stealing, when your child's cussing, when they're knocking a hole in something, your brain's telling you you're going to die, and that's why you're in such a hurry to try to get them to stop doing it. You're trying to get them to stop doing it, not to get them to feel better, not to teach them a lesson. You're trying to get them to stop doing it because it's freaking you out. It's scaring you. And see, we say, well, I'm trying to teach them. No, you're not. You're not trying to teach them. You're trying to make yourself feel better. But we have the ability to make ourselves feel better. We can't feel better based on our children's behavior. You can't feel better or you can't feel worse based on your child's behavior. You've got to be able to make yourself feel better, and that's internal control. And that's what ultimately we want to teach our children. We want to teach our children how to develop internal control instead of being focused on external control. Well, what about the diagnosis, Brian? Depression. Post-traumatic stress disorder, attention deficit, oppositional defiant, reactive attachment disorder, bipolar, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the diagnosis is because where there is a diagnosis, there is fear, there is stress, and there is trauma. And that's called getting to the root. That's called getting to the root. You can spend as much time as you want on the diagnosis. You can give the diagnosis as many pills as you want to give it. But until you address the root, nothing is changing. Nothing is changing. I stopped diagnosing 20 years ago, probably 18 years ago, I, started, I stopped diagnosing. And I remember, I still remember to the day when I did it. I had my own clinic. I started my own mental health clinic when I was 25 years old. By the time I was 26, I had 30 employees, and we were in three different counties. And I was standing in my office of our corporate headquarters, and I watched one of my therapists Walk, meet a parent and a three-year-old at the front door. He took the three-year-old by the hand. He said, bye to the parent, see you in an hour. And he started walking to the back with the three-year-old. And I thought, what the heck is he going to do with that three-year-old that could possibly make a difference? 
And that was the beginning of me stopping relying on diagnosis. Healing happens in the home. It happens in the home. It happens with families. And it always starts with the parents. Healing happens in the home. It happens with the family. And it always starts with the parents. You lead the way. And that's irregardless of whatever trauma your children have experienced. Your children show up in your life because you are perfectly equipped to help heal their brains. You are perfectly equipped to help remove the fear from their heart. They wouldn't be in your life if you weren't perfectly equipped. They show up in your life because you are perfect for that child. That child shows up in your life because they are perfect for you. They are perfect to force you to have to deal with crap you don't want to deal with. That's why that child shows up in your life. You think you're God's gift to your child. Your child is God's gift to you to help you deal with stuff that you hadn't dealt with before that child came in your home. Because that child has the perfect makeup of stress sensitivity to stress you the hell out. No one will stress you out as much as that child. The child's perfect. Perfect. And when you can learn to look at your kiddo and say, man, thank you for being an asshole. <laughs> Golly. You give me a good opportunity to grow. Wow. You start to transcend. Because then pretty soon you realize it's not about your kid. Your kid's healing through their own trauma. They're healing through their own pain. When they're upset and they're acting out and they're telling you how bad you are and how ugly you are and how bad your food is and how bad this house smells and how you've got to be the worst parent ever. That's not about you. It's not about you. It's about their fear of not being good enough. It's about their fear of not being good enough in your home and their fear that you're not going to keep loving them. See, fear is a paradox. Fear makes us do the exact opposite of what we should do. When I get stressed out and, I, and I'm scared, I say crazy stuff to you. Knowing, knowing in the back of my mind, I don't mean it. But I'm too scared and I'm too vulnerable to tell you the truth. I'm too scared and too vulnerable to say, I think you... I feel like you think I'm ugly. I feel like you think I'm not smart. I feel like you think I'm not a good child. I feel like you think I'm not a good athlete, and I feel like you're not going to want to have me in your life. My biological parent didn't want me. What makes me think you're going to want me? I feel scared. See, we're too vulnerable to say that. When's the last time you said that to your kid? We get vulnerable too. When was the last time your kid was acting out and you said, oh my God, I feel so scared right now. I feel so inadequate. I feel so helpless. I feel so overwhelmed. When was the last time your child was acting out and you just dropped to your knees and said, I'm so sorry, I don't know what to do to make you feel better. We don't do that. Instead, we stand up. 
feel incompetent. We know we've been doing this for, for years and nothing's getting better. We feel helpless and we feel scared and we're losing sleep at night and our, our health is getting bad. Our marriage is bad. Having a hard time at work. We know we feel all that stuff, but we tell our kids, no, we got it right and they got it wrong. When was the last time we as adults got freaking vulnerable with our kids? And cried and got sad. And that's just for us. But what about their pain? What about their trauma? These are traumatized children many of us are raising. Traumatized. Traumatized. Their brains have been changed by the abuse that they have gone through. They did not grow up with safety. They did not grow up with love. They did not grow up with nurture and affection. They grew up with stress and fear and pain. And we act like they shouldn't behave the way they do. Think about that. Someone has been raised in sheer chaos. Got a kiddo. He was picked up off the streets when he was four years old. If you picked a kid up off the street at four years old, you know that kid hasn't had anyone loving him. He has been raising himself. He has experienced nothing but chaos. And then he acts chaotic, and we wonder why. We wonder why. Your children have every freaking right to act crazy. They have experienced crazy things. And the sooner you come to that realization, the sooner you turn off all those old messages of how children should act and how children should behave and whether you're a good parent based on their behavior, whether you're going to get a, a, a chocolate chip cookie because your child performs at school, as soon as you turn off that BS in your own brain, in your own brain stem, you can get over it and you can start accepting your child right where they're at because they deserve to act crazy because they have experienced insanity. No one should experience what many of your children have gone through, have experienced. No one should do that. No one should have to go through that. But we do, and they do. We gotta get to a point to where we can start saying, you know what? I've been through that kind of shit, I'd act just like you. Let it out. Tell me about it. Give me some more of it. Let it out. Yell if you want to yell. If you're freaking mad, get mad. Because I'm mad for you. In fact, I'm madder for you. Because I loved you. And I'm sorry I wasn't there to protect you. I'm sorry I wasn't there to keep you safe. I'm sorry I wasn't there to catch you when you were two years old and you didn't have no one looking after you. Or you had some grown adult having sex with you. I'm mad about that. So you're mad, I'm mad too. So who's going to get more mad? Because we both deserve to be mad. When's the last time we did that? Oh, that's man right there. The microphone's like, whoa, whoa, daddy, whoa. When's the last time we did that? When's the last time we got that sad over our kids' pain? We wonder, we wonder why our children are not healing. It's because we're not getting vulnerable. We keep playing these BS games around diagnosis and medication. That's all, that's kindergarten stuff. You want to get real with your kid? Get real. You want your kid to grow? You want your kid to heal? You want your kid to work through trauma? Get real with them. Get real with them. Don't blame them for their pain. 
Don't blame them for the stuff they've gone through. Every time you get into punishing your child, the definition of discipline is to teach, not to punish. The definition of discipline is to teach, not to punish. So what that tells you, if you've put this talk together, what that tells you is if you want a child to learn, you want their thinking to be online. You want their short-term memory to be activated. You want their short-term memory to be turned on. If their thinking is confused and distorted and their short-term memory is suppressed, they're not going to learn. They're not going to learn. If we want our children to learn, we got to get them calm. If we want our children to learn, we got to get calm. Punishing your child is not going to teach them anything. They're just going to get older and they're going to have the same behaviors. When I was a kid, I had serious behaviors. And I got a lot of whippings. I didn't get a spanking. I got a whipping. Many, many whippings. Why did I get many whippings? Because I wasn't learning. Why wasn't I learning? Because I was freaking stressed out. I was stressed out. That's why I wasn't learning. Because my short-term memory was turned off. No one's teaching me. No one's teaching me. They're just stressing me out more. I went to school just the other day. One of my kiddos had an, had an incident. And it was a serious incident at school. So a serious incident. The sheriff's had to be called. His mom called me. And so I said, I'll meet you there. So I got to the school before she got there. And I, he was sitting outside in the hallway in, in the office, sitting on the bench. He saw me walk in. I walked in. I sat beside him. And I don't even know this kid that well. I know him enough. I'm familiar. We're familiar. We haven't hung out or anything. We're familiar. And I sat down beside him. He looked at me and he turned his head. And, you know, he was anxious. Man, he was anxious. He was, you know. I said, how you doing, buddy? He, he, he couldn't even say anything. He was so anxious. And then he'd stand up and look out the window, wait for his mom. He'd sit back down. And his face was twitching. I said, had a, rough, had a rough day, huh? I don't know. Twitching, standing up, sitting back down. I start breathing. <coughs> I say in here, and I say in here, he's terrified. Ooh, he's scared. So I'm sitting beside him. I put my hand on his back, and I just rub his back. It's a 13-year-old kid. Rub his back. He's sitting there. I'm rubbing his back, and I just say to him, hey, it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You're going to go home. Nothing bad's going to happen. It's going to be okay. And as I said that, he just stopped, put his head down, and the tears just started coming up. And I said, it's okay. Let it out, it's okay. You're gonna be all right. And they were coming up so much that he took his hoodie and he pulled his hoodie up all the way over his head. And he was just snotting and crying. And I just kept rubbing his back. I said, you're gonna be okay. His mom came. I had to go in the principal's office. 
So when children shut down like that, that's called turtling. Like a turtle who goes in their shell, you get overwhelmed, you get scared. Some kids go into survival, they get hyper-aroused. This is so important. So important because we miss this a lot in our society. We miss the hypo-aroused child. We miss them because when they shut down and they start turtling, we call it defiance. We call it ignoring. We call it trying to manipulate, trying to control. So then we get mad, we get stressed. So he goes into his hoodie, his mom comes, principal's there. She's like, maybe we should go in our office. And I said, okay, buddy, let's go, in. let's go in the office. And he doesn't move. He doesn't move. He's a turtle inside his shell. Turtles, you get a turtle inside the freaking shell, you ain't gonna get him out. So I said to his mom, I said, go ahead and go in the principal's office. We'll be there in a minute. I run his back room more, I'm standing up, and then I just backed up. I said, we need to go in the principal's office, principal's office buddy. He's still in his hoodie. I stand there for a minute. Probably 90 full seconds. Maybe even 60. And then he gets up. Still got his hoodie over his face. And I guide him into the principal's office. And he sits down. I didn't get mad at him. I didn't get stressed out. Just got him in there. We went this whole process. The sheriff's come. I'm glad I was there. I said to him, hey, the sheriff's going to want to talk to you. And they're probably going to tell you, you're going to have to take that hoodie off. But we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. You're going to go home. You don't have to worry. As soon as we have this conversation, we're going to get on out of here. So he's balled up. The sheriff's come in. The big, big one's the big sheriff. And the sheriff says, hey, I need to be able to see you. Got to be able to look at you, buddy. He wasn't moving. And I said to the sheriff, I said, sir, he's, he's stressed out. He's turtling. I said, that's what kids with trauma do when they get really stressed and they don't know what else to do. So he's in his shell, but he hears you. He's not trying to ignore you. He hears you. The sheriff heard him. He said, okay. He said, can you nod your head? I'm like, yes. <laughs> Kid nods his head. Sheriff asks him a few questions. He nods his head. And as he's nodding his head, he lets one eyeball come out. And the sheriff, the sheriff's probably six foot two. The sheriff kneels down so he can see him. And they have a conversation. What was interesting about it is that the sheriff said, do you think you need to go to juvenile detention? Kid said yes. Why do you think kids say you need to go to juvenile detention? Because that's his imprint. His imprint is that he screws up, he's going to get sent away. So yeah, he thinks he needs to go to juvenile detention. A child who's stressed out, who's not stressed out, will say, hey, Lord, I need to go to juvenile detention. I need to go home. I don't want my mind. A stressed out kid with trauma history said, yeah, I deserve to be punished. That's the absolute worst thing to happen for him. And he caught the sheriff by surprise because he's like, you think you need to go to juvenile detention? And I said, he's got a trauma history. He's used to being sent away. So yes, he really does believe that. The sheriff said, well, we're not going to take you. This really didn't have nothing to do with me. You did something you weren't supposed to do. I hope you don't do it again. We know you did something bad. Go home and hope I don't have to see you again like this. 
and we were able to go home. Kid was able to go home. If I had looked at that kid in any other way other than as being stressed out and being scared, then that could have all went wrong. Because all the adults around him were ready to be mad at him. And I'm not convinced that it's all his fault. I think there's a lot of leading up to it. Just the day before, he'd gotten in trouble, had, had issues with the teacher. And then the next day, issues again. See, we adults are not willing to take responsibility. So the kid gets punished, he gets suspended, but what happens to the teacher? Nothing. The teacher doesn't do anything different. You know who the teacher is teaching towards? The teacher is teaching towards the children who can regulate their brains. The teacher is teaching towards, in most schools these days, educate towards children who have the ability to regulate. But what about our traumatized kids who don't have that same ability? They're the ones who always end up getting in trouble. They're always getting in trouble. We always stress them out. And let's talk about this. This is I, I use this model for schools. And it, you know, it's very simple. As long as a child is stressed out, they are operating in their amygdala and their brainstem. As long as they are in their amygdala and in their brainstem, they are in survival and they are in reacting. That's where they're at. In times of stress, our thinking becomes confused and distorted and our short-term memory is suppressed. When you're in your amygdala and in your brainstem, you are not thinking. You cannot learn. You are surviving and reacting. That is all you are doing. You are yelling. You're turning over tables and chairs. You're stabbing other kids. You're threatening people. Or you're shut down completely and not doing anything. You are not learning. But what happens in schools is we take children in the midst of stress and we try to get them to learn. We try to teach them a lesson in the midst of stress. That's the absolute wrong time to try to teach a lesson because the brain is not in an emotional learning state. The brain has to be in an emotional learning state before it can be in a cognitive learning state. You have to create an emotional learning environment before the brain can actually come online and learn. So the teacher or the responsible person has to calm themselves down first so they can begin the process of calming down the child. Making eye contact, lowering their voice, saying it's going to be okay. You got a scared kid, you know, rub their back, give them a little physical affection. Soothe them. Nurture them. When you stress, you regress. You're not dealing with a 13-year-old. You're dealing with a scared 2-year-old. Comfort the child. And all of a sudden, they move up to responding. That's when they can pull the eye out of the hoodie. That's when they can shake their head. See, now you know you're moving in the right direction. That's when they can get up and actually walk instead of running away or threatening more. They're responding, but they're still not ready to learn. They're still not in an optimal learning state. Next is processing. Now they can begin to learn. Because now they can begin to think, and the optimal state for learning is the prefrontal cortex. Thriving and integrating. That's where kids have to be in their brain in order to learn optimally. That's where we all have to be, ultimately, in order to learn optimally. But in schools, most of the time, we're trying to educate kids when they are stressed out. 
Pouring the parenting continuum. But perfect love, responsibility and love, positive one out positive 10. We have reactivity and fear all the way up to the death penalty is negative 100. We have negative one and negative 10 on the fear and reactivity side. My contention is this. The most common things we do with children at home, the church, and school fall on the negative continuum, negative one through 10. Negative one through 10, those are the most common things we do with children. We don't realize, we don't realize because it's only negative one to 10 in intensity, that it's on the same continuum as the death penalty, which is negative 100. Every prisoner out at Pelican Bay grew up experiencing these. Every single prisoner at Pelican Bay suffered consequences the whole time they were kids. And the first thing parents want to do is talk about how they have to give their kids a consequence to teach them responsibility. Consequences aren't teaching your children responsibility. They're not teaching your children responsibility because a consequence is a reaction. It's so funny to me when people start talking about, you know, this logical way of giving a child a consequence, and I listen, I'm like, yeah, that's cool, whatever, whatever works for you. I don't argue that. It's a justification for their own stress, for their own fear, for their own insecurity. When we start justifying and talking about why we got to give our children consequences, it's because we're not willing to dig any deeper and do anything different. We're willing to do just what society tells us to do. And I understand this is not a popular opinion. I didn't get here by being popular. I got here by speaking the truth. And, and you're not going to get help. You're not going to get help from the people who try to be popular. Because they'll tell you that you need to do time out with your kids. And that's some doo-doo. That's fear-based. It's stress-based. Consequences, same thing. The thing that all these things have in common is they are all rooted in stress and fear. You just do more of them. That's why things that you do that create stress and fear, that you have to do more of them, they don't work. If they worked, you wouldn't have to do more of them. you do less. See, that's the thing. It's like the spanking, like the whippings I got as a kid. If the whippings worked, I wouldn't have got so many daggum whippings. Because I would have learned. But the whippings didn't work, so I kept getting my little butt beat. Until I got smart enough to be more sneaky. I didn't stop the behavior, I just got sneakier about it. Time out. When a child is acting out, it's, gone, it's because they've gone outside of their window of tolerance. When a child's acting out, it's because they're stressed out. When a child's stressed out, it's because they don't have an efficient, a sufficient oxytocin response. They don't have an oxytocin response to help them calm their stress. So when you say to that child, I'm gonna give you five minutes or 10 minutes of 20 minutes of time out, what you're not doing is you're not helping that child learn how to Release oxytocin. You're not teaching them how to release oxytocin. You're responsible for helping them release oxytocin. So I say, don't do time out, do time in. When a child's acting out, it's not because they're acting out for attention, it's acting out, they're acting out because they need attention. When a child's acting out, it's because they need attention. Not isolation. Or punishment. So bring the child into you for five or ten minutes. Isolation. Isolating children by themselves. What do you have at Pelican Bay? You have isolation. Time out. Isolation. These are just the kindergarten versions of Pelican Bay. The calm room in schools, it's the kindergarten version of solitary confinement. 
version. There's schools now that are creating padded rooms and calling them relaxation rooms. There's nothing relaxing about being put in a room all by yourself. These children come from neglect and abuse and deprivation. They don't need to be by themselves. They need to be connected to a loving adult. Someone who will be calm and someone who will be patient, someone who will be understanding. And someone who put up with the crap for a minute because they know that that crap that they're spewing is coming from their stress and their fear. Not sent away. Not isolated. Not deprived. Spanking. Spare the rod, spoil the child. The Bible did not tell you to beat your kids. I don't care what your preacher said. Spare the rod, spoil the child is speaking to the shepherd and the sheep. The rod is used to guide. The staff is used to pull them back into line when they stray. The rod's not used by the shepherd to beat his sheep. What happens when the shepherd starts hitting his sheep with the rod? What do they do? They run away. They run away. When we've hit our kids long enough and they become adolescents who get sick and tired of getting freaking hit, what do they do? They run away. Spare the rod, spoil the child means spare the child guidance, and they will be spoiled to the ways of the world, which means hit your sheep, they're going to run away and get eaten by the coyotes and the wolves. And then you're really going to be stressed out. Then you're really going to be talking about, oh, Lord, help us, Lord. Lord was trying to help you. Don't beat your kids. Don't hit your kids. It creates stress. And if you've got traumatized children and you're yelling at these kids and you're hitting these kids, you're doing nothing any different than the trauma they've already experienced. So they get a negative association with you who's a loving parent, who's actually trying to take care of them, who's actually not trying to abuse them and not trying to do any bad, but they get a negative association because you're creating a vibration that matches the vibration that they've experienced before they even came into your life. And now you're helping that vibration show up in your present with your child. Don't hit your kids. You can do better than that. You can do better. I grew up getting hit. I grew up getting hit. I've got three kids. I've got a 27-year-old daughter's son. I've got a 24 biological 24-year-old daughter. She's a social worker in Oklahoma City. And I've got a 16-year-old daughter. When my 24-year-old was 18 months old, I smacked her on the butt one morning because she peed in the floor. Because she walked in, I was in graduate school, her mother and I were sitting there bickering. Her mother, I still remember to this day, she was ironing, ironing something, and I was standing in the kitchen, and we were bickering about something. We were a young, stressed out couple, and Michaela comes in, she's butt naked, you know, we didn't care. She's, and she all of a sudden starts peeing in the floor. She was stressed. She was peeing because she was stressed. Because her mom and dad are bickering with one another. We weren't arguing, we were just bickering. It was tense. She started peeing. She was stressed. She was scared. And I picked her up and I swatted her on the butt. And I said, you don't pee on the floor. You pee on the potty. And I picked her up and I marched her in there. And I set her on the toilet. And I said, pee pee goes in the potty. And I'm standing there like this. And she looks up at me. And this big old tear welled up in her eye. And it just crested her little fat cheek. And I melted I melted. I got down on my knees in front of her, and I said, honey, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. 
I was 22, 23 years old. I said, Daddy will never hit you again. And I didn't. I didn't. Not because I had blueprints that taught me not to hit my kids, because I knew I could do something different, or I would do nothing at all. I would do nothing before I would hit my kids. Nothing. I would do nothing. And you know what? Sometimes doing nothing is better than doing something. Because if that's something you do is going to create more stress and create more fear, you're just going to make it worse. Do nothing. Go sit your butt down and get calm. Go take a freaking Xanax or Valium or smoke a joint or something. Just don't hit. Don't hit because you're creating a relationship pattern in your child's brain that mimics the trauma and the abuse that they've experienced. Consequences. We always talk about giving children natural consequences. Guess what? You can't give a child a natural consequence. That's why it's called natural. You can't create it. It's natural. Parent formulating consequences is what you learn, and a consequence is a reaction to an action. When you give a child a consequence for their behavior, you are reacting to their behavior, which means what you are modeling to them is reactivity. You're not modeling to them responsibility. And let me tell you the difference. You've got a child who steals. You go to Walmart. You say to your child, you get your butt in that basket, you little thief. Because you steal, and I'm not going to let you steal today. What child doesn't feel very good about that? You call that a consequence. You call that a consequence to the child stealing, having to get in the basket. They feel ashamed. They feel embarrassed. They feel guilty. They feel stressed. They look at you. They don't want to get in the basket. They get mad. They get stressed out. They push through the, you know, hop, they push through the grocery through Walmart. They get out, and you're yelling at them. Tell them to get back in the basket. What if? What if you pulled up at Walmart and you said, you know what, honey? When you get stressed, you take things that don't belong to you because it makes you feel better. And I know that. And I know that shopping is really stressful. So today, instead of walking all around, instead of me letting you walk all around, I'm going to have you get in the basket. Because in the basket, I can keep you safe. And when you feel safe, you don't take things that don't belong to you. You understand? Yes. Now, I know you're 14 years old. <laughs> but Brian Post said, if you got a 14-year-old that wants to get in the basket, let him get in the basket. But the point is, containment. Contain the space that they have to feel threatened in and take responsibility. Taking responsibility says, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to teach you by providing you an understanding. I'm going to help you understand why you do the things that you do. And I'm going to make this really simple for you. I've been making it simple all night. I'm going to make it more simple for you. Your children's behavior problems come from their stress and their fear. Start talking to your child about them being stressed. And eventually they're going to say, stop telling me I'm stressed. I'm not stressed. Take a deep breath and say, okay. And see their stress. It doesn't have to get any more complicated than that. And do that over and over and over and over again. Do it for two weeks. I say over and over and over again. You think I'm talking years. I'm not talking years. This stuff works within, within minutes. It works within hours, days, weeks. If you'll do it. The thing is, we just don't do it. It's too hard. 
It's too hard to create that kind of that kind of repetition in our children's brains. Behavior modification, points and rewards. The only kid, the kid. So why do we do all these things? Why do we do all these most common things? The reason we do them is that they work for 70% of children. For 70% of children, these things work. But we gotta ask why? Why does it work for the 70% and not the 30% that we've been talking about tonight? Because the 70% have the ability to regulate stress. The 70% aren't operating with trauma brains. The 70% can get stressed and not be completely overwhelmed. The 70% can have a teacher yell at them or shame them or demean them or embarrass them and they don't get overwhelmed and want to try to kill the teacher. But the 30%, the kids we're talking about, the 30%, they can't handle that stress. That stress puts them in their brain stem, which puts them in their trauma. And the only thing they can think about is survival. These things don't work for the 30%, but with the 70%, guess what? Anything you do will work. With the 70%, they're not even hardly ever getting in trouble. And when they do, all you gotta do is say, hey, stop it. And they go, oh. <laughs> because they have the ability to regulate stress. The 30% are the ones who we're really doing this to all the time. You know what these things are all about? These things are all about control. They're all about control, suppressing behaviors, or changing behaviors. You know what that means? They're all coming from fear-driven amygdalas. They're all coming from fear-driven amygdalas. Creating a therapeutic environment. That mindfulness, slowing down and paying attention, getting connected to yourself. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Starts with you. This all starts with us as individuals. Starts with us. Understanding. Understand the dynamic of fear. Understanding the fear. See the fear. Stop getting overwhelmed by the anger. You see your child getting upset? They're just sending you back into your stuff. Figure out what that is that you keep getting triggered by. You call it being having your buttons pushed. If your kid is pushing your buttons, it's because you've got something underneath the button that needs to be pushed. If they're pushing your buttons, it's because there's something underneath it. They didn't create the freaking button. They're pushing it. You're getting pushed because there's something underneath it. Figure out what that is. Emotional flexibility and matching. Being emotionally flexible. When we get stressed, we become emotionally rigid. Learn how to match your children's passion. Learn how to match their emotions. Learn how to match their upset. But not in a way that you're blaming them. In a way that you're matching them. They're scared. Get scared with them. They're mad. Get mad with them. Protect them. Make them feel safe. Allow them to feel heard. Allow them to feel like they really do matter. Like they're not a mistake. Like they're not bad. Because that's what they walk around feeling. Awareness, affection, and attunement. Being aware of where your children are at in, in their emotional state. Giving affection. I had a mom the other day ask her, how, much, how, many, how many times in there are you showing affection to your children? Once. When they, give, when they give me a hug, when they go to school. That's not showing affection. Twice, because they give me a hug right before bed. That's not showing them affection. That's them showing you affection. How many times in a day are you showing your child affection? Because guess what? When you're stressed, affection is the first thing to go. How many times are you making eye contact and smiling at your child and saying, I love you? 
How many times are you hugging them, really hugging them? How many times are you rubbing their head, patting them on the back? Every time, if you've got a traumatized child, every time you come close to that child, you should be touching them or engaging them in some kind of affectionate way. Every single time. If you're not doing that, you're missing opportunities. More of that battery right out, didn't we? That's awesome. If you're not touching them every single time, every single opportunity, you're missing an opportunity. Every time. But you know what keeps us from it? Stress keeps us from it. Stress keeps us from being able to connect at that level of affection. Attunement. Being attuned to how they feel. Being attuned to, to them being overwhelmed, them being stressed out, them coming, coming home from school and huffing and puffing and going straight to their room or slamming the door or, or picking up the cereal, thumping the cereal box. See, that's attunement. That's paying attention. Or when you send them to school, if they're all puffed up in the face, they're all red, and, you know, they got their arms folded. Be attuned and ask them what's going on. Wait a minute, don't leave yet. Let's hang out for a minute. Let's figure out what's going on. That's attunement. Time in, we talked about that. Containment, emotional and environmental containment. It's reducing the space. Reducing the space that the child has to feel threatened in. So in the classroom, I always encourage a teacher, bring the child with the stress sensitivity and the fear, fearfulness up close to you. Have the child with the stress sensitivity and the fear, fearfulness work in small groups, one-on-one, -on -one, not one-on-five. -on they can't handle it. Contain the space. Give them a certain place that they sit in in the cafeteria every single day. Give them an area of the recess of the playground that they play on every day. Not because they're bad, not because they're in trouble, but because I can keep an eye on you. And when I can keep an eye on you, I can help you feel safe. But if I let you have the whole playground, you get overwhelmed, and then someone gets kicked, someone gets bitten, someone gets hit, and then you end up getting suspended. 10 2010. As long as your child is not at risk of harming themselves or someone else, if, nah, that's a, that's a different one. That's three phase intervention. 10 2010 is this. If your child has severe behaviors, it doesn't matter what severe behavior is, child with the most severe behavior, here's what you got to do. Do this for two, two weeks consistently. Two weeks. Two weeks. 14 days. 14 days. Give that child 10 minutes of quality time and attention first thing in the morning. 10 minutes before they ever get in, out of bed. Get up early enough to go hang out with them. Rub them on the back. Sing a song to them. Read them a book first thing in the morning. Feed them a bottle. Whatever, whatever it takes. 20 minutes in the afternoon, as soon as they get home from school or as soon as you get home from work, 20 minutes. One-on-one, -on -one, connect the time, and 10 minutes in the evening before bed. If you'll do 10-20-10, 10-20-10 for two weeks consecutively, I'll guarantee you a 50% reduction in the most severe behavior you are dealing with. And I have been saying that for 20 years. 20 years. If you will do 10, 20, 10 for two weeks, you will reduce the most severe behavior you are dealing with by 50%. You might completely eliminate it. Three-phase intervention says reflect, relate, and regulate. Reflect, relate, and regulate. As long as that child is not at risk of harming themselves or someone else, the first thing you have to do when that child is acting out is stop and breathe. Take Three to ten deep breaths and ask yourself, how am I feeling? That's reflecting. 
And then you relate to the child by saying, I'm feeling scared, I'm feeling stressed, I'm feeling angry, how are you feeling? They're going to say, I don't know, because in the state of stress, when we're stressed and our thinking is confused and distorted and our short-term memory is suppressed, we don't know how we're feeling. So the first thing they're going to say is, I don't know. Well, that's valid. So what you have to do is you have to reflect back to them again how you're feeling because that's a teaching moment. But try to see the fear. Try to see your own fear first and then try to see the fear into their behavior. And then say, you look like you're angry, but see the fear. Don't call a child angry. Don't label a child angry if you can't see the fear underneath. Because if you do that, your brain is going to see a threat and then you're going to get stressed and you're going to get overwhelmed. Only label them as angry if you can see the fear underneath. If you can see the fear underneath, let them be angry because you see the fear. When you can reflect and you can relate, regulation starts automatically. One of my favorite stories I like to tell about this is mom who, who, who she emailed me. This was before texting, actually. She emailed me. God, that makes me fool. That makes me fool. <laughs> And she said, first of all, my child talks nonstop, nonstop incessant chatter, about everything. Drives me crazy. What can I do about that? I said, do you ever listen to her? She said, no. <laughs> I said, give her 20 minutes, 20 minutes of undivided time and attention. She did that. A couple weeks later, she said, every single night is a bad time battle. Every single night is a bad time battle. I go in my daughter's bedroom. And I say it's time to take a bath, and she starts flipping out, kicking and screaming on the floor like she's going crazy. I jump on her, and I hold her down until she calms down. And then when she's calmed down, we go into the bathroom. She sees the bathtub. She starts flipping out again, but this time she's getting in that tub whether she likes it or not, even if I got my clothes on. I put her in that tub, kicking and screaming, water splashing everywhere. I don't even try to wash her hair. Mom was taking this kid to the hairdresser because washing her hair was so challenging to do. I don't even try to wash her hair. Finally, when we get the bath done, we both fall out of the tub, exhausted, water everywhere, and then she won't go to sleep. <laughs> what do I do about that? 67-year-old adopted mom of a nine-year-old. I said, here's what I want you to do. Next time it's bad time, you mention bad time, your daughter starts flipping out on the ground. I want you to sit on the bed, and I want you to take three to ten deep breaths. And then I want you to call me back and let me know what happened. Because all I'm interested in is picking together the pieces of the puzzle. I want to understand the process that leads to the outcome. So I'm not focused on the outcome. I don't care about the behavior. The behavior is not important to me. The worse the behavior, the better. Because to me, all behavior arises from a state of stress. And in between the behavior and the stress is the presence of our primary emotion. And when it's severe behavior, that means there's severe stress and there's severe fear. All I got to do is help mom reduce the stress, reduce the fear, and the behavior's going to get better. It's really simple in my brain. And it's been that way for a long time. So when I say to mom, sit on the bed and call me back and let me know what happens, that's what I meant. And so she called me back. It's like four days later. She said, you're never going to believe what happened. She said, my daughter's kicking and screaming, just like she always does. I sat on the bed. I felt like a fool sitting on the bed while my nine-year-old stole in this big old tantrum. She said, but do you realize in less than 10 seconds, she completely stopped what she was doing, climbed up on my lap as if she needed a hug, realized that she didn't, and she went and got in the bath? Mom said that was too much for my own heart. 
That was the beginning of the end of their bath-time battles. Come to find out that this little girl, when she was picked up by Child Protective Services at the age of three, had lice so thick on her, you could pick it off with your fingers. Taking a bath was like post-traumatic stress disorder. And the mom, when she was a little girl, her older sister used to scream in her face constantly, and she said it would terrify me. So they're both locked in a negative feedback loop. Child traumatized, mom's traumatized. Had a mom, another mom, heard me tell the same story. I was in Dallas, Texas. Her name was Lenilia. She sent me an email two weeks after the lecture. She said, I heard the story. I thought I'd try this with my daughter. Her daughter's name was Christina. Her daughter was also nine years old. She said, I thought I'd try this with Christina. Went upstairs, said, honey, it's time to take a shower. Sure enough, she started talking back, just like she always does, but this time I've been breathing. I was calm, and I said, if you need anything, I'll be right there. She said, my daughter went and got in the shower. I couldn't believe it. But sure enough, she starts calling me, just like she always does. Mom, the water's too hot, it's too cold, I brought my towel, I need different soap. She said, usually bugs the heck out of me. But this time, I was calm, and I went in, I got what she needed, and I said, honey, if you need anything else, I'm going to be right here. And she said, I just sat there in the bathroom with her. Daughter got out. Mom said, that was the best shower we've had in four years. So I thought I'd go for a home run. And my daughter still had her towel wrapped around her, went to her bedroom, sat on the edge of her bed. She sat next to me, I put my arm around her. I said, honey, that is the best shower we have had in four years. What scares you so much about taking a shower? She said, my nine-year-old daughter looked at me and said, well, mom, the guy who sexually molested me made me take a shower with him. Without missing a beat, mom, She's not missing a beat because she's breathing. Mom says, honey, you don't have to take a shower anymore. You can take a bath. So when mom emailed me two weeks later, she said, after four years, my daughter is getting in the bathtub so fast and in and out now that I don't even know she's taking the bath. Completely eliminated her fear. Five minutes to overcome four years of pain and struggle simply by asking, what scares you so much? You all have the power to do that. That's very simple. But you just have to breathe. You just have to calm yourself down. You just have to tell yourself, you're okay. You all are great parents. You would not be here if you weren't. You are great parents. You are a blessing to your children, but your children are a blessing to you too. And if you're feeling overwhelmed with your child right now, it's because you've got some work to do. Do your work. Do your own work. Look at your own stuff. Look at your own challenges, and then help them to look at theirs. But don't ask them to lead the way. You lead the way first. Be strong. Be courageous. That's the way of love. That's the way of love. You lead the way and let them follow. And your life will change. It will change.
Everyone loves getting out of class early. So I want you to hear something. In any given situation, we always have two choices. We can continue to react from the same blueprints of stress and fear and overwhelm that we've experienced for generations. Generations, guys. Or you can stop, you can take three to 10 deep breaths, and you can choose love. It's just a moment's time. We all have the ability to choose love instead of fear. God bless you. Thank you for being here. And I'm done. Thank <laughs> you.